saw that. When I saw that, I thought, that is great. And I, even sitting in the theater, I thought, when am I going to be able to show that video clip? <laughs> Today is the day. God is a God of second chances, no doubt. God is a God of second chances. If you're at all a student of the Bible, you know that God is a God of second chances. You can see it right away. I mean, it just happens all the time. He gave Cain, he didn't kill him right away. And uh, Moses was, uh, God was patient with Moses when Moses didn't want to go back and be the deliverer of the people of Israel on their way out of Egypt. God was very patient with them, incredibly patient with them, and gave them multiple, multiple chances. The uh, whole account with David, who was a man after God's own heart, who instead of being out where he should have been out, where the kings were in the springtime are supposed to go out to war, I guess that's what you do when you're a king in the spring, he wasn't there and he decided to hang out and have an affair with Bathsheba and end up killing her husband so that he could take her as one of his wives. Jonah, as you see here, I think, I don't know if he was in the original, was an asparagus, but... <laughs> Jonah is a book unbelievable about second chances, about how God comes to Jonah and says a second time, now go where I asked you to go. And this time Jonah goes. You see Peter in the New Testament, if you've, if you've seen the, the movie The Passion of the Christ, he gets it, Mel Gibson got a lot right in there, but he got that and he nailed that when Peter denies him. The Gospel of Luke records that when Peter is denying Christ, it says the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Imagine the heartache there. And yet, Jesus completely restores Peter. God is a God of second chances, no doubt. Now, I don't want to push that too far. God is also a just God. There are times when he doesn't, for his own purposes, doesn't give a second chance. And that's absolutely right. But the theme throughout Scripture is clearly that God is a God who enjoys being patient and is very patient and is very merciful. And he's a God of second chances. Now, if you're an American, which most of the people in this room are, you probably have never asked this question. Why? Why is God a God of second chances? See, as an American, you, you, you think, you know, we think, uh, I deserve a second chance. I mean, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal. I mean, I, I, need, I need to get what I deserve. I have rights. And when something bad happens, they say, God, how could you let that happen to me? What is wrong with this? I want what's due to me. I want what's coming to me. Yeah, ooh is right. If you really study the Bible and you understand who we are and who God is, you would never, never say, God, I want what I deserve. Could I just have what I deserve right now? If this instant, if I asked for God to give each of you what you deserved... In the next instance, we'd have to open a morgue here. It would just be, woof, we'd all get what we deserve. I don't want what I deserve, I want mercy. Why does God do that? Why is he so patient? Does he owe us something? No. He doesn't owe you anything. As a parent of, of three lovely children, I might add, um, there are moments, there are moments when I have just had it and I don't, want, I don't want partial obedience. I want you to get your shoes on. And after you get your shoes on, I want you to get a jacket on. And after you get your jacket on, I want you to get in the truck. And I don't really want to discuss it. I just want you to move. We're moving now. This is moving time. This is not discussion time. We're done with patience. We're moving now. 
Somebody doesn't move, there are severe consequences. I don't know what yet, but you know, <laughs> I'll figure it out. Something is going to happen very bad, whatever, you, however you define very bad to be. And I've lost it. I'm just ready for movement. I don't, I don't want partial obedience. I want 100% obedience, and I want it right now, and I will settle for nothing less. Amen, the parents in the room? Huh? Amen. Amen. Are you not glad? Are you, are you glad that's not the way God is? Can you imagine? And he would have every right. He would have every right to say, listen, listen, there's only 10 of them. There's only 10. What part of thou shalt not do you not get? It's really simple. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, so quit worshiping the Maserati or, or whatever. Quit worshiping that. It's simple. It's a simple rule. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Worship me alone. Whew, I struggle with that one every day. Why is God so patient? If we all got what we deserved come judgment day, we would all be separated eternally from God. That would be what we deserve. And let me tell you something here right now. That is one of the most freeing things I can tell you this morning. You will never, never grasp and want to party along with the asparaguses there that God is a God of second chances until you realize what you really deserve. You'll never appreciate that thing until you realize that without it, you are toast. You have no hope. That's what gives you, when you the, the amount of the gift is worthy to what it paid for. If you don't really understand what it paid for, if you'll feel bad this morning because I'm calling you a sinner, man, I'm really not. I'm setting you free to enjoy the gift that God has given you. This morning I want to introduce you to someone, or actually we've already met this person, that, that many of us in this room, in fact, I think all of us, had this person been amongst us, we would have said, enough. That's it. If we'd have been part of the early church, I think we'd have been praying that this person would have died. Or we maybe would have even thought it had been just to kill this person. This would have been a person that we did not like at all. It would have been the Osama bin Laden of the early church. The person I'm talking about is Saul. Saul, or he's going to become known as Paul, and it's, he's the number one arch enemy of the Christian church at this time, and God is a God of second chances, and here's this guy who we're going to find out in just a little bit is doing whatever he can to make life miserable for Christians, and he is going to end up writing 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. Is that not awesome? I want to look a little bit back. If you want to open, you might want to grab a Bible and open up to Acts chapter, the end of chapter 7. We're going to, we've met Paul. Um, it, it's also on the screen here, but you can kind of follow along a little bit if you grab a Bible on this. What I really want to highlight this morning, we're going to look at something radical that happens to this guy named Saul. Later his name's going to be changed in Acts chapter 13 to Paul. We're going to, it's a radical thing. And you could walk away from going, wow, isn't Paul or Saul, his name is still going to be here, isn't he a really neat guy? And he is. I'm a huge fan of Paul. I, I love the Apostle Paul. But this is not about Paul this morning. This is not about Paul at all. Hey, this is about God and what God did. It, it, is, it is very little, if anything, to do with Paul. So just keep that in mind. Look at what happened. In the end of Acts chapter 7, Stephen is going to be, he's just given this long articulate thing about how he understands the Old Testament to fit in with Jesus. And he basically tells them at the very end, which is the reason they ended up killing him, 
is, he says, the temple is unnecessary. You don't need the temple. God doesn't live in houses made by people. He lives now by the Holy Spirit in us. And that was radical to that Jewish culture at that time. What? You are, you, that's blasphemy to say that God doesn't live in the temple anymore. You're, you're against the temple. And so, and so what happens here, if you pick it up in verse 56, Stephen is speaking. He says, look, I see heaven open up. And they cover their ears, it says in verse uh, 57. They start yelling at the top of their voices and they rush at him. They drag him out. They drag him out of the city and they begin to stone him. Meanwhile, while they're stoning him, it says, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So Saul was there as the authority and they lay the clothes there at his feet, their outer garments, because it takes a little energy to kill someone. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. He was the authority and he would be one of the big shots in the, in, in the uh, religious rulers of the day. The Pharisees was their name and he was part of that culture. He was one of the big shots. He gave approval to it. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Saul is a piece of work. Saul is someone who is adamantly opposed. So much so that he is risking his life and limb to go out and do whatever he can, even physically, to punish these Christians. He's going to destroy them no matter what. He did not take the advice of his mentor, Gamaliel. Gamaliel, if you remember in Acts chapter 5, was, we'll find out later that this is actually Paul's, Saul's mentor. And he told the, the, the religious rulers in Acts chapter 5, you know what, don't, don't persecute these Christians. Just let them be. If their purpose or their activity is of God, it'll fail. Or excuse me, if it's not of God, it'll fail. But if it is of God, he says, you can't stop this thing, so don't even try. Paul hears the words of Stephen where Stephen says, you know what? The new has come. The old's got to go. And Paul says, you're right. The new has come, but the old's got to stay. Therefore, the new has got to go. And he does whatever he can. There's been people who've written about Paul, and I did some reading about this just recently, who've said that Paul was pretty... <laughs> I don't even... This is so ridiculous. Some of these scholars... Man, I should be a scholar. Um, <clears throat> they say Paul was, you know, on his walk to Damascus which we're going to see in just a minute, he was pondering whether or not he should be sympathetic to the Christians. And, and, and this, this natural event happened, and it caused him to really think, and he decided to change his mind. No, 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 that is, that is, that is ludicrous. That is, that is that, there's just no way. Paul was opposed completely. So let's pick it up there and do our, what we're looking at this week. Acts chapter 9, we're going to look at the change of what happens in this man's life. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Christi Christianity's enemy number one. Meanwhile, Saul was still... Okay, meanwhile, stop right there. Meanwhile means that all that happened in chapter 8, when we go to Philip, Philip goes up to Samaria, all these things happen with Simon the sorcerer, the Holy Spirit comes on the... On the um, Samaritans, all that happens. Then, then Philip goes and he's hanging out with the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember that from last week? Okay, while that is all happening, 
chapter 9 is also happening at the same time. So it says, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats. <sighs> Isn't that a great phrase? It's a horrible phrase, but breathing out murderous threats. <sighs> <sighs> breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. It's about 150 miles away. He said, you know, some people have gone there. Um, I've done a lot of damage here in Jerusalem. Let me go to Damascus and trash the church so that if they found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners back to Jerusalem, back 150 miles. It's about a three days journey if you're going on foot. That's where Paul would have been going. He took with him some, some uh, people of the temple. But being a Pharisee, he probably would have little, if anything, to do with these People. So he did have time to think. I do agree with that. He did have time to think on this 150-mile journey, about three days if you're walking it out. It's pretty quick if, you, if I think of it. That's a long ways to go. But he, so he did have time to think. But I don't think he was thinking about, hmm, maybe Jesus really was the Messiah. I, I, don't, I think he was just getting madder and madder and madder every step of the way. Now something's going to happen in verse 3. As he neared Damascus, so he's really close, he's at the end of his journey here. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. So let's picture this again. He's traveled all this way, probably 140 out of the 50, 150 miles, or who knows, somewhere. He's real close to the end point. And all of a sudden, woof! This light flashes. I mean, just this amazing event happens. And he says, why do you persecute me? And, and, and Paul responds back, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't say, you're persecuting my followers. He doesn't say that. He says, you're persecuting me. That's radical. Not, you're, not, you're not just going against my followers. You're going against me, Paul. And then what happens is he, he's told to go into the city, and then you'll be told what to do. So he does that. He goes into the city. He can see nothing. And he says he's blind, and for three days he doesn't eat, and he doesn't drink. And there's no light. He can see nothing. Now, I don't know what you've been like when you've had something happen in your life that turns you 180 degrees around. You're, you're, you know, maybe it's a situation where you were just ready to really rip into someone. You know, just ready to, oh boy, here's some good justified anger. And you're just ready to tear into them. And then one new piece of information comes out that, oh, wasn't their fault. And you feel like just an idiot. Either if you, even if you haven't yet ripped into that person, you feel like, oh, how could I get so mad about that? Well, multiply that by about 100. Here's Paul who's going to go to Damascus to drag as many Christians back to Jerusalem as he can. 
And this event happens which changes his whole world upside down. And God in his sovereignty and his amazingness, all he tells him, I love this, all Jesus tells him is, you're going to go to the city and just wait there. Just wait there. Three days and three nights, can't see anything. And imagine he was quiet most of those three days and three nights. That is a long time. Your world has just been rocked. Can't see anything. You don't eat anything. That's a long time to be quiet. And Paul is wrestling with that. You know, I would just love to have been in that room with Paul or see the screen that's above his head, what he's thinking. Must have been radical. Then something happens. We're going to meet someone who's only mentioned one time in the Bible, but he's a huge factor in the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Pick it up in verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. Actually, that street exists today. You can still see it in Damascus. And ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. So here's this thing going on. you got these three days of Saul. He's hanging out. And at the same time, God is, or Jesus, Jesus, God, but speaking to um, Ananias, and he says that Saul, during this time, he's over here and he's praying. Also, what's happened to Saul is in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place, ha place his hands on him to restore his sight. Ananias asks the obvious. He says, Lord, uh, I've heard of many reports about this man. Uh, this guy, I got an, an APB on this guy. Uh, we talking about the same Saul at Tarsus? You're ta uh, Lord, I... I <clears throat> Uh, this guy, it says that he has reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And actually, he's coming here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Some of the news got to the people in Damascus ahead of Saul, and they were ready for him. They're getting ready for him. Maybe they were even thinking, like I said, maybe they're praying for this guy's demise. Maybe they were even thinking about, you know I know the Lord calls us to peace, but maybe it's appropriate to, to, to whack this guy. You know? I don't know. They're probably thinking these thoughts, and then you get this vision of God that says, go lay your hands on him. Go lay your... But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Oh, man. This man's my chosen instrument. Let me just stop right here and just throw a point of application out here. I don't care how far gone you think someone is. They may be the biggest jerk in your family. You may mention anything about God or Christianity or church or anything, and they may mock you in your face. God delights in taking people like that and turning them around. Okay? I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul. Can you imagine laying your hands on a guy who came here to kill you? 
And the first words out of your mouth our brother Saul. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food he, was re- he regained his strength. I love Ananias. That's the only time we're going to meet him. That's it. Ananias not only takes God at his word, but he goes there and he gives Saul his heart and says, Brother Saul. In 1995, a year before we started Hope Community Church, I had all these visions of what would happen with Hope and how great it would be and how God would give us a building in downtown Minneapolis and all that kind of... No, I'm just kidding. But... uh, and I remember sitting in, in a, I was an intern at that time over at Bethlehem Baptist Church, and I remember sitting at a uh, sermon that uh, Pastor John Piper was preaching, and, and I had one of those moments, and you're having them right now too, where you just kind of check out. <laughs> you're all doing it right now. But I was just checking out for a minute, and I was just doing some business with God, and I just was talking to God, and, and I felt very clearly that he wanted me to do something. See, that morning I had woken up around 5 in the morning, 4 or 5 in the morning to an ambulance outside of our house, and actually it was two doors down. And the ambulance uh, took away a man who was living there, a man who I despised, I'll be honest with you. He had um, weaseled his way to live in with this woman who was there. He had uh, taken advantage of her. He was an alcoholic, and he had just kind of made his way miserable And in the neighborhood. And one of the first people I met when I moved into the neighborhood, some... I guess at that time, it was about seven years previous, uh, was a drunken Ted at my doorstep asking if he could come in and have a beer. And I detested this guy. I just did not like him. I didn't want him around my kids. I didn't want him around anything. I just, this guy's nuts. And clear as I'm speaking to you, I felt the Lord say to me, you need to go to the hospital and you need to minister to Ted. And I thought, whoa, where'd that come from? I am not going to hospital. Are you sure, Lord? Because this guy's a nutcase. And the phrase from Jesus came to me, and, and I was thinking, I was actually thinking of two thoughts simultaneously. This whole thing that now had come to my mind, and what Hope Community would be like. And somewhere back there, I'm looking at John Piper, trying to, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I'm paying attention to you. Uh, <clears throat> like you're doing right now. But the image, the, the Lord's words came to back to me. He who's faithful and little, he who's good with little will be given much. And he says, well, if I can't trust you with this, I'm certain I can't trust you with the church. So I left that and I said, all right, Lord, I'll do it. And I remember uh, it took, took two days to get the courage to go to the hospital because this guy's going to think I'm nuts. And I went to the hospital and he was hooked up to a respirator in the last two or three more days of life that he had lived, terrible liver disease. He was, looked terrible. And I went there and I explained the gospel to him how I said it doesn't matter. There's level ground before the cross. doesn't matter what you've done in your life. doesn't matter. I said, you could, you could give those sins to Jesus Christ. I said, Ted, he couldn't talk. He had a respirator. I said, Ted, someone has to pay for your sin. Either you're going to pay for it or you can allow Jesus Christ to pay for it. Would you like to let Jesus Christ pay for your sins? And uh, I don't, 
He was really out of it, but a big old tear was coming down his eye. I don't know. I don't know if I'll see someday Ted in heaven. But folks, God still speaks to you nutty things that he's asking you to do. He'll still speak nutty things. And I love how Ananias responds. He just goes and he gives him his heart too. And he says, brother, brother Saul, what happens to Saul then? Verse 19, the second part of it. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, the people he came to kill. He's hanging out with them. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the man who caused havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? I mean, this must be some new kind of strategy or something. What are you doing? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Hamlet next week is going to unpack that verse, verse 22, what that meant. How Paul probably went about teaching from the Old Testament that Jesus was the Christ. Now, I got three questions I want to ponder from this text, from this passage. First thing is, what does it mean to be converted? I mean, obviously, this guy was converted. We're going to see that this wasn't just a ploy. This, wasn't, this lasted a lifetime. Paul was the real deal. What does it mean to be converted? Is this normative? Well, the answer to that is, is no, but it's also yes. There are some things from this that's normative as people turn, no matter if it's at age 5 or it's at age 55. It doesn't, doesn't make any difference. There's some things as people turn from whatever there was their God before to Jesus Christ. Let me look at four things about this real quickly. First thing. Conversion happens as a result of God reaching out to us. Same, now, is it going to happen in that way? Big flash of, of, of either lightning or some type of light and a whole thing and a voice. Can it? Possibly, but uh, it's not most people's experience. But it is the experience that it's God's initiative to work into your life. First Timothy, I, I'm going to quote Paul. I'm going to quote Paul because this is what Paul would say about it. And this is the guy who just got converted. Paul says in 1 Timothy, he says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. That's what Paul estimated himself. I was the worst. But for that reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. If you think you're the second worst of sinners after the Apostle Paul, you're in line. Here you go. He wrote to the Ephesians, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. You don't do anything to earn a gift. You don't do anything to earn a gift. A gift is a gift. Not by works, otherwise you could, you could boast. You go to heaven and say, Oh man, I walked 373,000 little old ladies across the street. That's how I got here. How'd you get here? So that's not how it works. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for, God, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, and it's interesting that he used the phrase light, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this, but we have this treasures in jars of clay, that's an imagery talking about our bodies, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. 
Folks, conversion does not happen from you. It is not because you've got it all figured out and oh, aren't you so smart? Conversion is God revealing himself to you and it is because he's offered a free gift in Jesus Christ. You do not earn it. You do not earn it. You do not earn it. Stop trying if you're trying. Just take the gift. But God says the only way you can have the gift is if you take it and it's free. I won't take it if you think you've earned it. You can't have it that way. Second thing, there's a personal encounter with the risen Christ. It's not a slick worldview. Not, if you're here and you're just kicking the tires of Christianity, it's not about trying to get you to think a certain way and become a Republican or become a Democrat or whatever. That, that's not the point. The point is, it's about a relationship with Christ, an encounter with Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul's telling them, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. If you're at a point in your spiritual journey where you're ready to trust Christ, it is a meeting with Jesus. It's not signing a piece of paper saying, I accept the 10 or 15 or 50 tenets of Christianity. Now that is part of it, but it's a face-to-face -face encounter. Now, is it going to be as dramatic as Paul's? Maybe, maybe not. I thought I was going to throw up when this happened to me. But it, wasn't, it was a face-to-face -face encounter where you're doing business with the Almighty God. Third thing. You have to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. You see, you see, Paul did that in a simple phrase when he said, Who are you, Lord? And then he obeys and he goes where Jesus told him to go into the city. Acts chapter 17, he, he um, is speaking to a group of people. Paul is speaking here in Acts chapter 17. We're going to actually see Paul is going to become, after Acts chapter 13, he's going to become the major character in the rest of the book of Acts. He says, therefore, he's speaking to this group of people who know really nothing about God. And he says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design or skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead." What is, what is the Lord calling? He's calling it two, two words that are, in essence, the same exact thing. But the two words are repentance and faith. Now, those are really the same thing. It just basically means you're turning from something and you're turning to something. That's what repentance is. The word means, literally, to turn around. Paul had to turn around. I mean, can you imagine what those three days, God was molding him into the man he wanted him to be, and those three days of the major thought process he was going through. The utter turnaround, it requires repentance and it requires faith in Christ alone. And the last thing is it's vital for the body to be part of who you are. Instantly, Ananias came. Does it ever strike you as you think of this passage? Why didn't Jesus just do it? Why didn't Jesus just heal him? Why didn't Jesus uh, uh, be the one to welcome him in? He didn't. He says, just go to Damascus. And Ananias is the one. He wanted to welcome him into the church. Paul speaks in, in the book of Romans and he teaches about this. He says, Just as each of you has one body with many members and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. That is part of it. 
That's part of it. You're actually being converted into a people. It's part of the deal. That's the first question. Second one is suffering where, where Jesus tells Ananias, this guy's my chosen instrument. I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my sake. Now, is that just for Paul or is that for all of us? Great question. Bad answer. <clears throat> Philippians 1.29. For it has been, Paul speaking to the Philippians, he says, for it has been granted to you. It's a gift. It's been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Suffering is a normal part of the Christian experience. You are going to go through life. Life is way harder. I talked to, talk to Cor. Where'd Cor go? I saw him. He's around somewhere. There he is. There he is. Talked to Cor. We were out driving around this week doing some errands. And I asked him, what's changed in your life since, since being a follower of Christ? And he talked about some of the glorious, great things that were very hard. Very hard. And I thought through that in my life too, you know. Before I was a Christian, I, if you had a problem, I, you know, sucks to be you. But I didn't really care. Give me another beer, you know. Now God commands me to care and there's something inside of me that actually cares about you. And it hurts when you hurt. Now let alone it hurts when I hurt too. Suffering is, that's just a small taste of suffering. If you're going through something hard, Welcome to the normal Christian life. Suffering is part of it. Now lastly, are we to be faithful even when it doesn't make sense to us at the time? You know, look at Ananias. Are we supposed to do that kind of thing? Paul is recounting what happened to him, this wild encounter, and he's speaking to a king by the name of King Agrippa in Acts 26. We'll see that in six or seven years when we get to Acts 26. And he's recounting what happened. He says, Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? And I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of God, excuse me, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins. And a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. We see in this account that actually there's more words that Jesus said to him. We don't see all that in the first in Acts chapter 9. So then King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. Seriously. I mean, you, you, if you're just walking along and this whole thing kind of happens, you got to be going, ooh, that's some bad pizza or something. I mean, that was really weird. Um, maybe I'll do that if God does, I know, if God makes all the planets align in the next 15 seconds. Okay, I won't do it. So, okay. No, he says, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea, and to the Gentiles also. I preach that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. Yes. Yes. question I have for you this morning in closing is this. How is the Lord Jesus Christ getting your attention? Got Paul's attention. Got Ananias' attention. How's he getting your attention? Are you at that place in your life, just like Saul, you're going one way, and God is speaking to you very clearly saying, come to me. I want you to turn. You could do that right here and right now. Right now. You could say, right now, Lord, I, I want to come to you. And I lay down and I surrender my life. I surrender it to you.
I'm a ship, you're the wind, blow on my sails, I'll follow. I follow you, Jesus. I take your death upon the cross as my punishment, and I let you take it. You could do that. In, in your own words, do business with God right here. Even as I'm talking, you could be doing that. Some of you might be going through a suffering period. And Paul, we're not going to see it yet. Paul's going to go through some suffering in the book of Acts. Is God calling you to do that? Yes, he's calling you to do that. Are you suffering well? Are you saying, Lord, I will, I will put up with this for your sake? And then lastly, are you being faithful to what God is asking you to do? It might seem like something nutty. Are you being not only faithful with your actions, but with your heart? Brother Saul, let's pray. Lord Jesus, the same Jesus who appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus, you are here right now. And there are many of us in this room who are at some point in our journey along the same way as as Paul or Ananias. And we'd ask that you'd meet us right here and right now. Lord, we ask for those who are at a point where they really want to turn, that this morning would be their day. This, this morning would be their road to Damascus. This morning would be the day you'd speak to them and that they would turn. And for the first time in their lives, they'd say, yes, Lord, I want to be a follower of you. Jesus, I accept you as my Lord and I accept you as my Savior. Come into my life. Change me. Just pray, God, that you would give... The people, in, even in this room, people can hear my voice. Lord God, you give them the courage to bend their knee to Jesus Christ right now. They would surrender. Lord, I pray for those of us who are going through a very difficult time in our lives, either emotionally or physically, or through persecution of family and friends or whatever. God, that you would allow us to say that is part of the package. I'm not being ripped off here. It has been granted to me on behalf of Christ to not only believe in him, but also to suffer for him. God, would we be a church that suffers well? And Lord, I also pray for those who are, God is putting, you are putting some things in their minds, speaking to them in, in ways that words cannot express, and you're asking them to do something, something like a TED, like for me or, or for for something like Ananias and go to your arch enemy and lay hands on him and welcome him into the church. A, a relative that needs reconciling. or oh, I don't know who knows what, God. You're asking a lot of things of us and I pray you'd give us the courage to be just like Ananias and just straight, sometimes grit our teeth and just obey. And just to do what you'd have for us, God. Not only with our feet, but with our hearts as well, God. We just say, yes, Lord. I trust you more than I trust whatever this circumstance is. Move in us, Holy Spirit. We want to give you freedom even in these last couple songs that as we sing them, God, you would just continue to speak to us and ask what it is we must do. We just pray these things in Christ's name.